it's something new in terms of what it means for the future. I suspect that this may be something of a precedent. The topic for this episode isn't something orthodox per se, but is something of import to Christians, orthodox or not, and that's the resignation of Pope Benedict XVI. Somewhat surprisingly, Pope Benedict's less than eight-year pontificate is not short compared to other pontificates. The average pontificate is only about seven years, so while it seems that Pope Benedict has only been the Bishop of Rome for a short time, this is actually fairly normal. What isn't normal is how he's leaving office and why. Pope Benedict is renouncing the papal throne due to health reasons, something which has never been done before in 2,000 years and about 265 pontificates. In fact, there have only been a handful of resignations in the entire history of the Bishop of Rome, and none of them for health reasons. To discuss the import of Pope Benedict's resignation, I talked to a few people. We'll first hear from Jimmy Aiken, a Catholic apologist, author, and speaker. Jimmy, thanks for being here. No, no problem. My pleasure. So, Jimmy, this is being called a unique event. Is this actually a unique event for a pope to resign? Well, um, I guess unique is a relative term. It's not unique in the sense of Pope Benedict is not the first pope to ever have resigned. There have there have been uh, previous popes who have resigned, not very many, but some, including even one previous Benedict, Benedict the Ninth. Uh, but it is unique in another sense. This is the, or perhaps in several senses, but one of the key ones is that it's the first time that a pope has really resigned for health reasons. Uh, there have been previous instances where uh, popes resign for the good of the church, and really basically virtually all of them have been, you know, in one way or another for the good of the church, but, um, and, and that's Pope Benedict's motive here, but previously they haven't really been for health reasons. Probably the closest parallel is uh, Pope Celestine V, uh, who lived about 700 years ago, and he resigned very quickly after becoming Pope because he was temperamentally unsuited to the job. Uh, he, he, he'd been a monk. He, he lived in a cave, and uh, literally, and then was, was made Pope, and he was just in way over his head, and he figured that out very quickly and resigned so that someone who had the talents needed for the office could uh, could begin guiding the church because he recognized in himself that he did not have them. But uh, that's even that's different than Pope Benedict because although Pope Benedict feels he no longer has what is needed to do the job the way he feels it needs to be done uh, because his health has declined, he previously did have those abilities. And so uh, it's something new in terms of what it means for the future. I suspect that this may be something of a precedent. I don't know how many future popes are going to resign, but uh, I suspect it's not going to be as long before it happens again because the the papacy today just involves a lot of scrutiny and a lot of stress that uh, is of a whole different nature than what has come before. And I can very easily see a Pope saying, you know, I'm 85 years old as Pope Benedict is, or 90 or 95 years old as medical technology improves. I think it would be better if someone younger was doing this job, someone with more energy uh, to apply to it. I can also see situations where, uh, you know, degenerative conditions that would interfere with um, 
with a pope uh, with a pope's ability to function that might lead to resignations. If a pope, for example, were diagnosed with Alzheimer's, you know, I, I think resignation would be something that that should be considered because today a person can live with Alzheimer's for uh, you know many years and it would really not be good for the church to be in a situation today especially um, where the Pope was effectively incapacitated for that long. Now in a situation like that is it true that a, a Pope cannot be deposed? That's correct. Popes cannot be deposed. Now they, I mean there's no method for validly doing that. There have been instances in Christian history where uh, an emperor or some other group of people such as a group of rogue cardinals or something would would force a pope out of his residence and uh, and and tell people don't listen to this guy anymore but that's not the same thing as actually removing a pope from office that that's that can't be done even though people have tried to do it so in the situation of a pope that might have a, a mental illness such as Alzheimer's, what can be done? Well, um, there, there, there's no way to force a pope out of office. He can only resign of his own free will. Presumably, if members of the College of Cardinals saw that a pope was failing, let's say they saw um, him having signs of dementia, uh, of a significant nature and perhaps you know some of them certainly would be aware if he'd been given a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and if he was still in such health that um, he was likely to live for a number of years they probably would privately counsel him that he should think about resigning for the good of the church because if he slips in to full-blown dementia he, he couldn't really resign at that point you know, I mean, it, it, if he's not in his, if he's not freely resigning the office, he's not resigning the office. So, the ability to resign presupposes a certain level of, of capacity. And if a pope, if a pope were uh, unable to function in that way, then the church would just have to live with it until he naturally passed. The same thing would apply, for example, let's say, God forbid, an assassin you know, tried to kill the Pope and didn't succeed in killing him, but did succeed in putting him in a permanent vegetative state. Well, th there would be no way for the Pope to resign at that point. And so um, he would, uh, the church would simply have to live with it until he naturally passed. Unless the other mechanism for handling this is something the Pope had arranged. Apparently in the past, Popes have arranged basically advanced directives for what is to be done in particular situations so that if a particular condition is fulfilled they are to be considered as having resigned. A famous example of this is uh, Pope Pius Twelfth, who was Pope during World War II and he was despite what you may have heard from some people a, a real antagonist to the Nazis. Uh, he had been uh, an antagonist with the Nazis even before he was Pope and he strongly suspected that uh, Hitler was going to kidnap him and uh, be, you know at one point Germany rolled basically rolled into Italy and took it over and he strongly suspected he was going to be kidnapped and that Hitler would try to use that to um, 
to harm the church. And so he wrote a directive and let certain key people know about it, that if he were ever abducted, that he was to be considered resigned and the cardinal should proceed to elect a new pope. So he had a kind of conditional resignation ready in that eventuality. And although it's not publicly discussed, at least not yet, it's it's possible that subsequent popes have prepared similar directives like if I'm ever put in a permanent coma that's gonna go on for years, or if I'm ever incapacitated in some other way, I, I resign and elect someone new at that point. To get a better picture of how Pope Benedict's resignation fits with the history of the Catholic Church, I talked to Dr. Andrew Jones. Dr. Jones studied history at Hillsdale College and then got his master's and PhD. I got my PhD at St. Louis University in, well, it's in medieval history, but explicitly, more narrowly, the study of the medieval church and especially the papacy. I'm a specialist in the 13th century and the relationship of the growing papacy, the growing power of the papacy with uh, secular rulers, with kings and things, uh, princes, things like that. Now, Pope Benedict is 85 and so retiring for health reasons is perfectly understandable. Is this um, particularly old for uh, popes historically? Well, if you're talking in the Middle Ages, um, up through the High Middle Ages, you're going to be getting obscure references to them being very elderly. Right. Um, sometimes you'll have people like Celestine V is one of the popes who resigns um, in 1294. Um, he is described as being 80. The problem with that is uh, 80 is one of those one of those ages that in sort of pre-modern times is often thrown around as meaning really old. <laughs> so, you know, numbers, uh, accurate numbers is not something that people in the Middle Ages were too concerned about. Uh, they were more concerned about sort of order of magnitude, right? So um, I, I don't think, I think it's kind of treacherous ground to try to come up with hard numbers until you get into the modern period, probably. So we perhaps don't know about age for sure, but it is accurate to say that pontificates are very short? Yes, it is. In fact, papacy, that, that, that papacies are very short, or pontificates, I should say, are very short, was a staple of discussions surrounding the papacy for centuries. In fact, there was a, in the Middle Ages, there were, it was a sort of a genre of theology on the brevity of the paper, of pontificates, because the idea was that God uh, purposely kept them short as an act of humility, that if you were elected pope, um, your days were numbered, basically. <laughs> so there was a, um, there was a, the, the, the way they discussed it was that Peter was understood to have ruled for 25 years as the Bishop of Rome, and that for the longest time they thought, um, or it was often said that no pope would ever rule longer than that. Um, Peter's years was the out, outward limit. They, they, you say this isn't doctrinal, this is just sort of tradition, right? People, things that people would say. Um, that actually held true until uh, Pius IX in the 19th century, I believe, where we, we, you had a pope who, who, who did exceed the 25 years. But that, like for, so for the vast majority of the papacy, yes, very short uh, papacies. In fact, some of them uh, incredibly short. I mean, we have John Paul I, of course, who ruled just for a matter of weeks in the 20th century. But that happened uh, quite a bit in the history of the papacy. We have 
There's one period in the 13th century where in the course of a year and three or four months, there were five popes. It's a quick turnaround, short papacies. And a lot, a lot of that is because uh, the, the, the Roman church elects uh, older men who have a lot of experience and it's a very stressful job. So, you know, I, I, those things, you put those things together and you get pretty short pontificates. <laughs> There have been other resignations in the history of the papacy, so is this event really unique, or have there been others like it? So this is different. This is the first. I mean, probably the closest we can get um, to an example is Celestine V in 1294, but that, um, and he was an elderly man elected uh, at the age around 80, they say, um, but that is more of... The reasons that were given for his given for his resignation were more um, temperament that he was not he was a monk and a hermit. They actually um, quite literally marched to his cave in the mountains and said, um, "You've just been elected pope," you know, and and pulled him out of the cave to go be pope. It wasn't his. Uh, it, it wasn't something he was suited for, <laughs> and it didn't last very long—a few months—and uh, when everyone sort of became aware of that, and he resigned, so. That's the closest we have to where it wasn't all other instances of papal resignations, which there aren't many, only five. They are having to do with dealing with crises in the church. Um, and the resignations are a part of a, a process of solving certain crises in the church um, where that, that are sort of external to the resignation itself, right? So it, it, this is a different case in that the Pope Benedict XVI seems to be proposing papal resignation as itself a solution to a problem, that of, um, of, of elderly men who, who don't have the vigor necessary to rule the church in its current sort of predicament in the modern world. Okay, so take us back in time prior to the resignation of Benedict XVI and tell us why the prior resignations are different in nature from the resignation that we're seeing now. In, a, in an earlier, a different resignation of a pope, the, the, the most recent one, which is Gregory Twelfth, which happens in 1415, it's a very different circumstance there. There we are coming out of the Western Schism, right, where we had for um, uh, a number of decades, two rival lines of popes, one out of Avignon in France and one out of Rome. And Gregory XII is, the, uh, is from the Roman line and, and, and uh, Catholics believe that to be the, the legitimate line of popes. Um, by the time, the, the schism of course was a terrible scandal for the church, extremely destructive both in people's, uh, the prestige of the papacy, its moral authority, its spiritual authority, um, its temporal power, the church is really sort of dismembered by it. It's a, it was really a horrible event. And by 1415, we have a serious attempt at solving this. And, and actually by 1415, there's actually three rival popes. Um, and the solution that is wrought is we're going to hold a council. All the cardinals, bishops from around the church are going to come together and all three popes are going to be removed. And the way this was going to happen is the, the French and the third pope are going to be um, deposed, basically, by the council. 
and the Roman line, Gregory XII, would resign. And this was a compromise that everybody could agree on. And then they could elect a new pope for one for the whole church, right? So that's a sort of crisis for the last resignation. And what's, what's interesting about this is Gregory XII resigns in 1415, but they don't proceed to electing a new pope until 1417 after he had passed away. So they waited until he died before they elected a new pope. Um, and that saves dealing with the problem of having the previous pope and the current pope being alive at the same time. So this is going to be in this case with Benedict XVI will be really uh, something that, that has not happened um, in a very long time. I mean, if we go back uh, even earlier than, than Celestine V to the, the, the time before that, if you go 250 years back uh, from him into the 11th century to find uh, examples of papal resignations there, and where you have Benedict IX and Gregory VI, who both resigned within two years of each other, um, in that situation, Benedict IX, it, the, 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 having a pope who had resigned be uh, continue to be alive was, was a, a very large problem because Benedict IX was pope and a very scandalous pope, a very sort of scoundrel. Um, he was ultimately, he ultimately resigned in the favor of his uncle who came in to be pope um, who, as Gregory VI after Benedict. But Benedict IX is still alive and he actually comes back, decides he didn't like his resignation comes back and overthrows his uncle, Gregory VI, and puts himself back on the, on the papal throne. Um, then, a little bit later, they are, um, uh, he's removed, Benedict IX is, by an intervention of the emperor, Henry III, because Benedict IX is such a scandal. And a different pope is put on the throne. Um, but that man uh, dies pretty quickly, and Benedict IX comes back again. So he actually has the distinction of being appearing on the list of popes three different times with popes in between. Um, now that's the 11th century, it's a time of sort of turmoil in Rome uh, and a, a time when the papacy was really sort of a, a dominated by Roman aristocratic factions who were all fighting with each other. Um, it got sorted out shortly, fairly shortly after that, but there is a very clear example where a previous pope being alive um, created some problems. If you want to go back, I mean, we've touched on basically every resignation but one at this point, and that's St. Martin I, who resigned, who ruled from um, uh, 649 to 655. And in that situation, St. Martin is um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a fight with, with the Emperor Constance II from Constantinople, who's supporting the Monothelite heresy. And Emperor or, or St. Martin is ultimately basically kidnapped and sent into slave labor and is in exile. And the Romans elect a new bishop, um, and Martin uh, approves of this. Now that, so it's sort of a de facto resignation or a backwards-looking resignation of a sort. He approves a successor. 
Um, there, we don't, there's two popes alive at the same time, but one of them is in a slave labor mine someplace in the Greek island, right? So it, it, it didn't really, it wasn't really a problem, too much of a problem uh, as far as that, that that's concerned. So this is sort of, with Benedict XVI, it's certainly entering into new territory. People resignations are rare occurrences, but when they do happen, there usually causes for unrest in the church. Hopefully this isn't the case due to the resignation of Pope Benedict, but it seems that he's intentionally doing something to avoid this. One thing, you, in terms of parallels between him and Celestine, one of the things that I think he's consciously setting up as a parallel between him and Celestine is his plans for retirement. In Celestine's day, uh, it you know there were uh, and it was a in some ways it was a much more vicious world than what we're living in now. Um, there were intense factions uh, at the time all over the world and and including the Christian world. And the new pope that succeeded Celestine recognized that there is a problem uh, if he ha if Celestine was uh, was just out there on his own uh, because his own the new Pope Benedict or Boniface the eighth's enemies could use uh, the fact that there's a previous Pope uh, to undermine the papacy and cause a new papal crisis uh, in fact something like that had happened about a century beforehand when Pope Benedict the ninth had uh, had left the throne. He even tried to come back and kind of did twice. So um, in after Celestine resigned, Pope Boniface did not want to allow him to fall into the hands of his enemies, and so he was enclosed. Uh, he was basically uh, lived out the rest of his life in a supervised environment where people couldn't get to him and try to use him and manipulate him to cause a new crisis. And Pope Benedict the Sixteenth uh, seems to be setting up something similar, where he voluntarily has—he's announced that he's going to voluntarily spend uh, his retirement either at Castel Gandolfo for a period, or after that, at a monastery on Vatican property that's being renovated. So, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, he's planning on spending his retirement uh, on Vatican property, not off on his own where people might try to exploit him in his in his final uh, months or years. Pope Benedict was a, a fairly prolific writer. Um, do you know whether he plans to continue writing and publishing in his retirement? And if so, does that cause confusion uh, in the church? Yeah, I'm, I'm not clear on will he actually keep writing and publishing. He may. Um, and if he does, that would be interesting uh, because and personally, I would welcome it because I, I love reading his writing. Um, he's he's brilliant, and I've learned an enormous amount from him, and I'd love to continue learning from him. Um, but I don't know if he actually will, because anything he publishes could kind of raise a question mark about how does this fit? It could raise exactly the question you've asked. How does this fit with church teaching? Um, is this something that's authoritative? Uh, what does this say? about the 
teaching of the new pope? Does this somehow undermine that? And he, he very definitely does not want to undermine the new pope. And so if he continues to publish, it will only be um, if he can find a way to do it that he doesn't think undermines the new pope. I, I'd hope, my wish would be that he does find a way, but I don't know that he will. Um, it's clear, though, that upon resigning from the, uh, from the office of the papacy, he would no longer be able to exercise the papal magisterium, that is, the pope's teaching authority. That passes to the new pope. And so uh, it I, I suspect if he did publish anything, he'd probably make that very clear. He did something like that uh, in his first volume to his series, Jesus of Nazareth. He made it very clear up front that this is not a work of the magisterium. This is his personal writing, his personal thoughts. And so he said, everyone therefore is free to contradict me, which to my mind illustrates the amazing humility of Joseph Ratzinger, you know, to be Pope and say, everyone's free to contradict me. This is personal. This is not church teaching. Um, I, I suspect he would probably say something similar in anything he published in the future, just to make clear, I'm, I'm the Bishop Emeritus of Rome, but I no longer exercise the, the papal magisterium, and therefore this, these are just my personal thoughts and reflections. Um, and so I suspect he'd do something similar if he published. According to Catholic teaching, the Pope has a, a special gift of the Holy Spirit in order to teach infallibly. Is that something that a Pope would retain after renouncing office? Is it permanent? That's that's not something that the Church's tradition has countenanced. Um, when Popes have resigned, it's understood that they just they cease to have uh, the authority that they did as Pope, whether that's doctrinal authority or uh, legislative authority or what have you. It's true. I mean, St. Paul does say the gifts and calling of God are, irre are irrevocable, but that's not a universal truth that applies to all gifts and all callings. Um, obviously, sometimes God gives us gifts that we then proceed to squander or throw away, or uh, he may give us a calling at one time in our life that's different than what we're called to do at another time in our life. For example, if you are um, at one point single and then you get married, you have a calling now to be faithful to a specific person, to your wife. And if your wife dies, uh, you're not called to be faithful to her in the same way anymore. Obviously, you want to be uh, faithful to her memory and things like that. But that doesn't mean, for example, that you don't go on to get married to someone else. And uh, in the same way, if you're employed uh, by someone to do a job, then you're called by God to execute that job faithfully. But that doesn't mean that you remain in that job for the rest of your life. You can move on to other employment, and then you're called to be faithful to that. And so uh, the papacy is something that's kind of between those two. Unlike marriage, um, it's, it's more solemn, uh, like marriage, I should say, it's more solemn than an ordinary job. But unlike marriage, it is something that one can resign from and genuinely be out of 
afterwards. Um, so it's it's kind of between the two in a certain way, but uh, the 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 church's tradition wouldn't countenance the idea that a pope continues to have the potential to speak infallibly after leaving office. He would, because he's still a bishop, uh, have uh, potentially a certain engagement of the magisterium on the grounds that he's a bishop, but it wouldn't exceed that of any other bishop. really does seem to be such a monumental event that's taking place in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. And I wanted to know from Andrew and Jimmy, from their viewpoint, what is going to be the long-term consequence of this resignation? And what's Pope Benedict going to be known for? Up until this point, the way pontificates end is by the Pope uh, dying. And there, the exceptions are so few and far between and of such extra extreme nature, such an extraordinary nature, that um, this is, is, is a different thing. And if it becomes a norm, which, which when you think of the criteria on which Benedict XVI is making this decision of being, of being elderly and not, and not, not having the strength um, to, to rule the church, there's no reason to suppose that this won't continue to happen and, and, and become a sort of viable option for future popes. If it happens, then it becomes a, 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 a development in the institution of great magnitude. Um, well, in terms of its long-term significance, I think it starts setting some precedents for future popes. I think probably it will not be another 600 years before we have a resignation. Uh, they may become they may become much more frequent than they have been recently. We'll just have to see. Um, in terms of Pope Benedict's legacy, I think people will look on him as a great teaching pope. Uh, he is just an amazing teacher. He's, he's very clear. He's very direct. He's very understandable. Um, and he is, and he has great theological insight. Um, there are differences between the skills and aptitudes of different popes, and teaching really was one of Pope Benedict's uh, signature um, elements. Uh, it was just part of his makeup. He was an, he was a great teacher. He also was a great man uh, of personal holiness and humility. Um, he is, uh, the fact that he is willing to walk away from the papacy when he sees his own powers failing is an illustration of his humility, as is the fact he would say in the case of Jesus of Nazareth, this is not an act of, the, this is not a work of the magisterium, everyone is free to contradict me. Wow, what humility is it for a pope to say that publicly in print? Um, he has made uh, outreaches to different groups, including, for example, uh, members of the Anglican Communion who wanted to uh, uh, enter into full unity with the Catholic Church, but retain certain elements of their Anglican heritage. He facilitated that by creating the Anglican Ordinariate. He liberalized the use of the traditional Latin Mass. Um, he has uh, 
engaged in dialogue with a variety of different groups, uh, sometimes with greater success than with others. Um, he has uh, tried to serve people of all kinds of different faith communities um, to the extent that he can, and I think all of that's going to be part of his legacy. My deepest thanks to Jimmy Aiken and Dr. Andrew Jones for taking the time to discuss Pope Benedict's resignation with me. I have a bit more to say about them at the end, but now I want to get to an Orthodox perspective on the resignation from Father Laurent of St. Innocent of Alaska Orthodox Church in California. Father Laurent is a speaker, author, and professor on various topics. Father Laurent, thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Father Laurent, what were your thoughts on the resignation when you first heard? Well, regarding the resignation, uh, you know, it's hard to say whether, uh, you know, one would be surprised or not. On the one hand, um, Pope Benedict had hinted that he would consider resigning. And also, since he was uh, very close to Pope John Paul II during those difficult last years, I think he was painfully aware that a Pope that is not truly functional um, is in fact um, uh, doing a disservice uh, to the Roman Catholic Church. There was a discussion, you know, isn't that abandoning your children to, to resign? And obviously there's different ways to abandon your children and, and one perhaps is to claim to be able to, to, to govern, in this case the Roman Catholic Church, when one cannot. And I think it was um, it was an interesting decision in the sense that, yes, it, was, it, has, it hasn't been done in a very long time, six centuries. At the same time, uh, Pope Benedict um, was a fairly um, interesting pontiff. He changed his, uh, his views. He was rather flexible. He was more of a, of a liberal um, priest uh, in the 60s, you know, wearing a tie at the council, and then ended up being a, a conservative uh, liturgical uh, pontiff uh, in the end. Um, he was, on the one hand, you know, thought to be very hard uh, on dogma, but really he offered a number of compromises with, um, uh, with orthodoxy and, um, and even Protestants. So he was a very complex uh, figure. But what is for sure is that it is the end of an era. It's the end of the era of popes that came from World War II Europe, basically. And I think there is a, a, an amazing amount of expectation regarding, you know, possibly the race, the national origin, and the orientation for the next uh, pope. And orientation means both, you know, more more modernistic or more conservative, but also uh, focused more on the developing world than on the on on Europe, which has basically lost, it seems, to uh, to the faith in 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 many ways. Father Laurent, both Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI seem to be making um, fair strides in an ecumenical way toward warming up relationships between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, what do you think are the chances at uh, that reconciliation between the two at this time? 
um, th- there's this this great difficulty in that Rome has gone so far liturgically and in terms of, of kind of spiritual ethos away from orthodoxy that it's very difficult to to rebuild a bridge you know um, Pontifex Maximus means a great bridge builder and it would indeed take a great bridge builder uh, to to rebuild a bridge to orthodoxy when the Catholic world is so vast you could say so so fragmented it's only unified ultimately by allegiance to the Pope it's not unified by a, a common spiritual experience ultimately ex- uh, whereas orthodoxy is is only united by a common uh, spiritual experience, uh, liturgically and, and spiritually. And in this case, I think we have to really look at this election um, of the next Roman pontiff as something that must be of interest to Orthodox Christians. We, we cannot ignore just how big uh, the Roman Catholic Church is and um, and how um, influential it is, and and how much history we uh, we share, and 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 how much we are in many ways lumped, whether we like it or not, with uh, with the fate of the Roman Catholic Church. And so I think we have to um, to pray. Uh, the see will be vacant. Uh, we can always pray for uh, an Orthodox man to be elected, uh, who will really. Um, I want to uh, to revisit uh, very difficult topics and uh, uh, and bring bring at least himself and the official stance closer to to orthodoxy. Uh, but it would be an incredible task to sort out the issues and and in general the um, the, the great challenges that are faced by Catholicism internationally. It's important to to pray for for the Church of Rome. Uh, we all hopefully know the the famous lines by Saint Irenaeus, who praises this this great and most ancient and venerable church established at Rome by Saint Peter and Saint Paul. And that uh, there is something unique historically and in our in our consciousness about the Church at Rome, and and. Uh, what the popes were for so long you know we are going to be entering into land soon and we have you know pope gregory the great who is being remembered we have throughout the year we we mentioned you know pope martin and pope leo and so we 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 cannot pretend that the sea of rome is not part of our concern of our prayer life that that we are not concerned about our own spiritual state in the Orthodox world, and as well as concern about what's happening uh, in Rome and uh, and in the West. So I think during, especially during the days when the sea is vacant, I think it's 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 really suitable for Orthodox Christians to pray uh, that uh, Peter and Paul would intercede uh, for for this uh, this ancient and venerable church that uh, history has taken really away from uh, from our communion. The Orthodox have never chosen to send, uh, you know, one of our bishops in Rome and to pretend that that was the way to restore the Pentarchy. Uh, we, we, we just have always, even when you look at the encyclical of uh, um, 1848, of the Eastern Patriarchs, it was always, well, we return to our faith and we will embrace you again as, as our first among equals. It was never an issue of just sending one of our own to, to become the Pope instead of the Pope. We, we've, we've never 
acknowledged that there was no bishop of Rome. We, we, we've simply said that that it's just a defective state of affairs, and therefore, uh, it's it's something that needs to be repaired in an authentic way. And and it's it's a time of prayer, especially during Lent for us, and uh, at a time when we do in fact uh, serve the liturgy of Pope Gregory the Great to um, to remember the Church of Rome, and to to hope for the best and for. Uh, the Lord's will for his people. Thank you for your time, Father Lauren. You're most welcome, and uh, may God bless this, this podcast and your listeners. Despite the real differences dividing Orthodox and Catholics, we sincerely pray that the next Bishop of Rome will be a godly man full of wisdom and with a heart dedicated to unity. For those of you who may be interested in why popes take the names they take, Jimmy Aiken has a great book for you. I actually started a study after John Paul II died of the history of papal names and I started looking at and noticing patterns in how they go and I completed that study last year and on a lark I published it as an ebook. Um, it's available for Kindle and Nook and uh, you can, uh, it's very inexpensive, you can get your own copy at popenames.com or popenamesbook.com. Uh, so it's it's available there, it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, it's in the Apple iBook store. And I talk about the history of papal names, I talk about uh, why popes pick the names they do, including quoting from the recent popes on why they chose their names. And then I, I uh, using the analysis of, of the history of papal names, I make predictions about what name the next pope is likely to choose. I don't have a single name that I think is going to be it, but what I do is I establish probabilities. I'll, I'll say there's a 12% chance it's going to be this name, and a 10% chance it's going to be that name. And so I, uh, so I have... going to be laying down any bets, this is the book you need. Exactly, yes. If you're going to be heading to Patty Power or something like that, you want to get this first. And if anybody wants to hear your podcast on the history of people resignation, uh, where would they go? Uh, they can either go to jimmyakin.com, that's J-I-M-M-Y-A-K-I-N, as in nancy.com, or they can, which is my uh, my main website, and it has links to almost everything I do, or they could go to jimmyakinpodcast.com uh, and get them there. Also, if you have iTunes, you can just go to the iTunes store and uh, search for Jimmy Aiken podcast or just Jimmy Aiken, I think, and it'll come up and they're absolutely free. So you can download them and listen to them and share them around and all that's great. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here, Jimmy. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And finally, let me extend my uh, thanks to Dr. Andrew Jones, who not only is a medieval history um, PhD, but also works at Logos Bible Software where he is the product manager for their line of products directed at uh, the Roman Catholic market. Um, but he, uh, he also um, has some, perhaps some things that could work for Orthodox Christians as well. So please tell us uh, a little bit about your work at Logos. Yeah, so Logos, Logos Bible Software is a system, uh, just sort of brief explanation of what it is, is that we have uh, uh, tens of thousands of digital texts um, from throughout Christianity, Christian traditions, um, and the software ties these all together and uh, keys them to the scripture, so that uh, you know, for example, if you're if you're reading a certain scripture passage and you can very easily with a single click see every time uh, some of the church fathers say one of the church fathers uh, cites this passage or gives a homily on it or something like that, you can go from 
um, the lectionary or the liturgical readings directly into commentaries, into um, sermons that are relevant. And they're all, it's all linked together. It's all searchable. It allows you to delve into the Greek in a very powerful way. Um, even if you don't know Greek, because it, the, the software understands the relationship between the translations and the um, original languages. So it's, very, uh, it's a very powerful system. As far as Catholic and Orthodox resources go, over the course of the last year, we've built a very extensive um, Catholic uh, product line. But um, a lot of it comes from, uh, a lot of the content comes from the Church Fathers, um, things like that, that we would certainly share with the Orthodox. Um, and we, you know, you can go actually to logos.com slash Catholic and see the packages, they're called Verbum. Um, we have recently, actually it's, it's uh, interesting you should ask this, because we have just started uh, sort of ex explorations into what we can do for the in the Eastern Orthodox um, tradition so we are are bringing people on board um, who can help with that and are trying so in the next year or so we should be seeing a lot more resources that are targeted specifically to um, the Orthodox so there you go if you're interested go take a look and that's the end of the podcast please keep in prayer regarding the upcoming papal election and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite player and tell your friends. Thanks to Yusuke Satsumi, musicians from Marlborough, Jason Weinberger, Dexter Britton, and Claudio Nuez for the use of their music on this podcast. You can find their music and more at freemusicarchive.org. This is conversationsonorthodoxy.com.